Well, our reading uh, today comes from Acts chapter 16. We're going to read verse 11 to verse 40, and that can be found on page 925 of the Church Bibles, and it will also appear on the screen. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, 
They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Well, if you'd like to keep that passage open in front of you, we'll look at it together, but as we do that, let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this time to gather round your word, uh, and as we do, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our midst. We, we pray that we would be more uh, conscious of, of your power at work through your church as we spend time here in these words, that we would be encouraged and refreshed and, and renewed and emboldened uh, to live for you, that you would strengthen our church as a result of the time that we spend uh, together now in this passage. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, I wonder if you are a fan of underdog stories. Uh, there are some great examples uh, in the realms of, of film uh, and fiction. Uh, we have uh, the stories of, of Lord of the Rings, for example, where uh, little guys with hairy feet succeed uh, against the might of Mordor. Or, or Star Wars as the Rebel Alliance uh, uh, battles against the, the formidable empire. Uh, but perhaps all, my all-time favorite underdog story is actually a, a true story. The story of how in 1983, uh, a small provincial football team from the northeast of Scotland, Aberdeen, took on the might of the most successful team in the history of football, Real Madrid, and defeated them in the European Cup Winners' Cup final. Uh, as a lifelong Aberdeen fan, it's a story I never tire of telling, especially since we have barely won anything since. Uh, films and sports are filled with underdog stories where seemingly insurmountable odds are overcome to achieve success. And there's a sense in which the history of the early church fits the bill of an underdog story. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus' followers number just 120. They were a tiny minority in a hostile world. And yet today, there are over 2 billion people on our planet who would call themselves Christians. Despite seemingly insurmountable odds, the message of the gospel has changed countless lives down the ages and across the world since Jesus called his followers in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And over the past few weeks, we've been thinking about how that miraculous growth has been made possible. We've seen the power at work in the church to enable it to fulfill its calling. We've seen God's people empowered by God's Spirit to fulfill God's mission. 
And today, as we close out our series, I want to jump forward into the middle of the book to the passage that, that we just read to see how such an underdog story could play out. In the passage we're looking at today, we see how God began the radical transformation of a whole continent through a small group of believers in the city of Philippi, using the same approach that he still uses today, by working in power as he plants his church, as he plants communities of his people into communities that have never heard about Jesus. So just to set the, season, set the scene, uh, we're told in verse 9 uh, and verse 10 that the early church leader Paul and his traveling companions, which at this point included the author of the book of Acts, Luke, uh, they respond to a vision from God that directs them to Macedonia and to, to the main city of Macedonia, Philippi. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was, uh, it was like a retirement home for Roman soldiers. And we discover early on in verse 13 just how far away from home Paul and the others were. Luke tells us, verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. Now, normally on the Sabbath, Paul would head to the local synagogue to start telling the Jews there about Jesus. But in Philippi, there was no synagogue because there weren't enough Jews in the city to begin one. Now, to put that into perspective, you needed 10 Jewish men in a city to start a synagogue. But Philippi didn't even have that. This was a pagan city that had next to no knowledge of the God of the Bible. The Philippians, they believed in the many pagan gods of Rome. They were a million miles from having any concept of Jesus. Now, in places where there, there was no synagogue, people who had some understanding of God would regularly gather by the river. And that was a practice that dated back to Old Testament times where the exiled people of God met by the river after they were taken from their home in Israel. And so Paul knew that if there were any God-fearers in Philippi, then that's where he would find them. And that's exactly what happens. Down at the river, they meet a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia. We're told, verse 14, that she was a, a seller of purple goods. Lydia was a bit like the Vivian Westwood or the Stella McCartney of her day. Purple was the, the color of, of, for royalty. So Lydia, she dealt in high-end fashion. She would have been a woman who enjoyed the finer things in life. She would have had connections with all the right people. She was a woman of means. But Luke tells us that she was also a worshiper of God. In this pagan city, she was one of just a handful of people who believed in the God of the Jewish scriptures, the God of the Old Testament. And as Paul shares the message of the gospel with, with her, we see God's power at work. We're told, verse 14, that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. God was at work in Lydia as Paul spoke. 
Now, we don't know exactly what, what Paul said, but based on similar examples of his preaching in Acts, we can be sure that he would have explained that the fulfillment of all that she had read was found in Jesus. He was the, the promised king of the Old Testament. He was the one who, who offered forgiveness and eternal life to anyone who believed. And we're told, verse 15, that after hearing Paul's message, she believed, and she was baptized along with her whole household. This woman, who was clearly hungry to know the truth, responded to the gospel message, and she was added to the church. But the gospel isn't just a message for the hungry. It's also a message for the hostile. See, Lydia wasn't the only person in Philippi to respond. Luke writes, verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Now, what this girl was saying was absolutely true. But the fact that she was saying it under the power of an evil spirit would have been confusing for the people of Philippi. And this is something that clearly gets to Paul. He was greatly annoyed. And so he casts out the evil spirit in the name of Jesus. And although we're not told anything more about this girl, the fact that Luke places this account between two other very different stories of people experiencing God's saving power, it makes it very likely that she too became a member of the Philippian church. And that's one of the wonderful things about the gospel. It's a message for the hungry and it's a message for the hostile. You know, sometimes people hear the message of Jesus and they are quick to respond. But for others, they might be very opposed. You just need to take Paul, for example. Before he came to Jesus, he, he, he spent his days rounding up Christians and throwing them in prison. And yet God's Spirit is powerful enough to work in any heart, even those we might least expect. See, the gospel isn't just a message for the hungry or for the hostile, it's also a message for those who couldn't care less. And that brings us to the third person that God saves in Philippi. See, after Paul delivers this slave girl, things really kick off. Luke tells us, verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So when her owners realized that their money-making scheme has had its day, they drag Paul and Silas before the magistrate on trumped-up charges. Uh, now, the reason that they were angry was because they had been hit in the pocket. But that is not how they spin it to the magistrate. They argue things on cultural and religious grounds. They misrepresent things. It's a really underhand thing that they do, as opposition to the gospel often is. And as a result of their opposition, the crowd said about them, and the magistrate has them beaten with rods. Now, this is brutal stuff. And it's a reminder to us of what we were thinking about the other week, that when the gospel is flourishing, then opposition quickly follows. 
Now, what was happening in Philippi was such a huge moment in the history of the church. Here was the first church ever planted in Europe. Here was the gospel going out to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus had promised. It's no surprise that the devil wanted to attack them. When it comes to opposition, we can't be naive. We need to recognize that when things are going well, then attacks come. Whether it is uh, through words that are said or physical persecution. Whatever way it comes, we can be sure that even in the midst of opposition, as we saw the other week, as unpleasant as it is, opposition is no barrier to God's power. In fact, as we, we saw the other week, opposition ultimately only serves to fulfill God's purposes. It's used by God to continue to build His church. And that's exactly what happened in Philippi. If you look with me at verse 23, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. Now, the intention of throwing them into prison was to silence them. It was to thwart the advance of the gospel. But instead, all it did was enable it to flourish. Instead of shutting up, we're told, verse 25, that in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. While they prayed and sang, the other prisoners, they, they listened to them, no doubt struck by the faith of these men who had been severely beaten and yet were still praising God. And as they prayed and sang, we read verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now, if ever there was a chance for a, a prison break, this was it. The doors were flung open and everyone's chains just fell off. And when the jailer wakes up and he realizes what's happened, he prepares to take his own life to save anyone the trouble in the morning. It was more than his head was worth uh, for these prisoners to escape. But as he drew his sword to end it all, Paul cries out. He mercifully intervenes, verse 29. Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And in response, the jailer falls at Paul's feet, full of fear, and he asks Paul and Silas, verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now this guy, at the start of his shift, he'd just been minding his own business, just doing his job, getting on with his life. But ever since these two prisoners had turned up, he'd been confronted with the power of God's Spirit. They'd arrived badly beaten, but they'd spent the night praying and praising God. No doubt this jailer heard them proclaiming the gospel message that night in prison. And now here he was, his life mercifully spared, recognizing that what these men stood for was what he needed. And in response to the jailer's question, Paul shares the gospel with him. Verse 31, he says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And that's the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? That no matter who you are, no matter what you might have done up to this point in your life, 
Even if, like this jailer, you haven't given Jesus a second thought, the invitation is there to you to believe in Jesus and you will be saved. And that's exactly what this guy does. He goes from beating them to bathing them. Verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. This guy and his whole family are baptized and they praise God for their new lives. And so within a short time of arriving in Philippi, God's people were empowered by God's spirit to fulfill God's mission. The hungry, the hostile, and the indifferent all radically transformed as they experienced the saving love of Jesus Christ. But these three very different people, they were not saved in isolation. They were not saved to go alone. They were saved and they were united together in Europe's first ever church plant. After they got out of prison, Paul and Silas, they head for Lydia's house. In verse 40, when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now, look what's happened here. The, the reference to the brothers, uh, we could extend that to brothers and sisters, that's a reference to a church community. Here we have the family of God gathered at Lydia's house. Lydia was a wealthy woman. She obviously had a big enough place to host them. This group of new believers, they had been brought together to form a local church, a Christian community in Philippi. It's a, a church we learn about later in the New Testament in the letter to the Philippians as, as Paul writes to this same community. Now, think about that for a minute. Only a few days before, there hadn't been a single believer in Philippi. And now here was a church, a group of Christians united together by their faith in Jesus Christ. They didn't just share a common interest. There was a deep spiritual connection between them. They were part of the same family now. They were children of the same heavenly father, brothers and sisters in Christ. And just imagine what this community must have looked like to the people of Philippi. I mean, just think who was part of it. A wealthy businesswoman, a former slave girl, the, the lowest of the low in that society, and a jailer. Now, these were not the kind of people who hung out together. Uh, they came from completely different backgrounds and social classes. And yet, here they were, united together by the power of the Spirit, part of the same church. Imagine the witness that must have been to their city as Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman, opened up her home to a slave girl and a jailer as she served them and loved them. You know, that kind of thing just didn't happen. It was unheard of. But it was as they loved one another and as they served one another that those around them were pointed to the ultimate example of love and service, the one at the heart of their community, the Lord Jesus. And as people were pointed to him, that pagan city was turned upside down. This account is an amazing demonstration of the power of God's Spirit to plant, to save people, and to unite them together as a church. 
One minute there was nothing in Philippi. And the next there was this radical new community that pointed to the love of Jesus, that spoke of the hope that there was in him, that caused people around them to sit up and take notice. A community that had a radical impact, not just on that city, but on its continent. You know, when you think about it, if it wasn't for the faithful witness of these believers in Philippi, uh, of this early church plant, then we might not be sitting here today. This church marked the beginning of a movement that spread across Europe as communities of God's people sprung up from city to city, from town to town, as more and more churches were planted. And as God's people were united together and proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ, lives were transformed, and they are still being transformed today. You know, maybe there are things that frustrate you about church life. Uh, maybe you feel that you have very little in common with those who make up your church family. On the surface, there might be very little that should hold us together. But that's the point. Uh, John Stott uh, writes, it would be hard to imagine a more disparate group than the businesswoman, the slave girl, and the jailer. Racially, socially, and psychologically, they were worlds apart. Yet all three were changed by the same gospel and were welcomed into the same church. You know, one of the wonderful things about the church is that it transcends cultures. It makes no distinction based on country or history or social class. If you take our church, for example, we are a group of people who, left to ourselves, would never normally relate to one another. We come from different countries and backgrounds. We have different interests. The road that we travel to, to get here today, it may have varied greatly. But what unites us is not a superficial ideology or a shared common interest like a, a favorite football team. Despite my bef, best efforts, I, I have not managed to persuade you all to support Aberdeen yet. What unites us is not a common interest. It's an intimate spiritual connection. The power of God's Spirit that unites us to Christ. It's the Lord Jesus who is at the center of all of this. He is the reason that we are together as children of the same Heavenly Father, part of the same family, God's people, the church. You know, when you are part of a church, it can be very easy to see all the problems, whether that's the flaws and failings of others, the pace at which things like discipleship or, or mission move at, the deficiencies in the preaching or the music, might be tempting to keep quiet about your, your church family, to, to treat them a bit like an embarrassing uncle, to avoid bringing your non-Christian friends in contact with those who are part of it. You know, sometimes we can wonder, surely God must have a better plan for reaching the world. But folks, there is no other plan. This is it. God has chosen to fulfill his mission through his church. And despite all the mess that we make of it, despite all the deficiencies that we might see, the church is Christ's bride. And she is beautiful. 
When the world looks in and sees a community of people who love one another and serve one another, who forgive one another and are gracious towards one another when we sin against one another, a community who are generous and kind towards one another, who seek to meet needs when they arise, a community that seeks to bless one another and encourage one another, a community that prays for one another and seeks to build one another up in the faith. What the world sees is something so different and yet so beautiful that it points them to the one at the heart of it all, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who works in power as his church is planted. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for our church. We thank you for the blessing it is to be able to be united together by your Spirit, to be used by you to fulfill your mission. And we thank you that even in the midst of all our flaws and failings and imperfections, that you choose to work in power through us. And we pray, Lord God, that you would strengthen us, that you would enable us, that you would work through us to, to, to share the good news of Jesus with the people of Leith, that people would increasingly come in contact with this church family and, and see something so radically different and yet so beautiful as they see the bride of Christ. We pray, Lord God, that, that we would uh, delight in, in the salvation that you've given in Jesus Christ. We thank you for just the wonderful picture that we have in, in Philippi of people who were hungry, hostile, and indifferent, all responding to the gospel as your spirit worked in power. We pray that you would refresh us today that your spirit would renew and strengthen us. And that as we come to this table to take bread and wine, we would be reminded once again of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That we would be reminded again of all that we have been forgiven. That we would be reminded again of the, the glorious eternal future that we share. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.